Now, take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back to Genesis chapter 3. And let's resume our um, our study of Genesis chapter 3. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 3, excuse me, at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, we're in the midst of a little four-part series on the book of, or the chapter, Genesis chapter 3. You may recall that I told you in the first uh, installment of this series that, that there are really only two halves of the Bible. There's The first half is Genesis 1 and 2. And then the rest of the Bible. And then in between the rest of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is kind of a watershed. It's, um, it's the place where sin enters. And um, the rest of the Bible is about how God found a way to save people who were steeped in sin. This morning, um, in the third installment of this series, we come to the, uh, to the section in the text, in the story, where you begin to see the consequences of their disobedience. Oh, the consequences. <laughs> if we could only avoid the consequences. But we can't. We have to live with those. And oh, how bitter they often are. Those consequences. You know, guys, uh, Satan uses the same strategy with us that he used with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. Do you, do you, do you remember that story I, I started with oh, three weeks ago? Um, David and Bathsheba, you know, David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, impregnates her and has her husband. Remember that story? Well, guys, um, uh, Satan doesn't come to David and say something like this. He doesn't come and say, uh, now, David, listen up, bud. Uh, you know, I hate you. And I have a nasty plan for your life. And I, what I really want to do is to destroy you and your family and, and your kingdom. So uh, come outside with me and let me show you a woman bathing. And the rest, as we say, is, of course, history. A history that's full of painful, complicated, unwanted consequences. The consequences of disobedience, which are haphazard, they are uh, unpredictable, 
They're completely out of our hands. Our whole life kind of spins out of control. But they are inevitable. Guys, you may not believe me when I, when I, about what I'm about to say, but um, I can tell you with every fiber of my being. Most of the motivation that I have this morning to speak to you with such urgency about the consequences has to do with having to watch you sort out the absolute chaos that our disobediences have produced. I have to watch as as you face terribly hard, difficult things. And so at any cost, I, I want to try to help us all avoid the consequences. The consequences of our disobedience. And in this text, guys, in the text, there, there, we don't have time to really look at them all, at least in length. So I'm going to try to mention them somewhat briefly. But the consequences that are unfolding before our eyes, as as on the that come on the heels of Eve's disobedience. Let me mention them somewhat briefly. Um, the, the first thing that you see in verse seven is that they become self-aware. They become um, self-centered. You know, they were naked before they disobeyed. But we're told in verse 7, all of a sudden, their nakedness is altogether different. It's, it's, uh, it's something that has produced a, 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 sh- a matter of shame and, and, and guilt. The nakedness was there, but sin changed all that. And, and the nakedness now becomes an issue of my own shame. Guys, you know how it goes. You, 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 can't, um, you can't look at each other in the eye anymore. Because of what we've done. <clears throat> you can't, um, you can't view them ever quite the same. Because now shame has injected itself and I have become self-aware, produced by my sin. The second thing that unfolds in verse 7 also is that Adam and Eve do what all of us sinners do. We, we try to fix it. We try to fix it ourselves. We try this, this effort at some kind of self-salvation. You know, it never works, but we try. Fig leaves. Ha! Ha ha! Fig leaves. What a, what a foolish attempt. And they never work. But that's what we do next. In the midst of our panic, we try to fix what we have just unleashed. We try to dam it up, but it it spills over. And we never can quite get it the torrent stopped that we have unleashed by our choices. We try. We try to fix it. We try to cover it up. But it never works. The the third consequence that you see in the text is in verse 8. Because Adam and Eve's fellowship with God is now shattered. They hide. 
that sweet freedom that comes from a clean and from a clean conscience that is now gone that kind of that that kind of ease of living is now gone and now god draws nigh and and i run because my guilt has given me the sense that i'm liable for punishment and so i have to hide I, I, I try to find a place where he can't see me. You know, guys, we don't hide in bushes anymore. But we hide. We hide in work. We, um, we hide in alcohol. We hide in, in, in things or we hide in philosophy or we just anything that will allow me to forget my accountability to God for what I've done. Adam used to enjoy these visits that he got from God, but not anymore. And here in, in verse 8, you, you, you begin to see man's flight from God. His, his quest to, to become independent Is this the knowledge that you wanted so much, Adam and Eve? Is this the fun? That you thought your sin was going to bring you? Is this the kind of happiness that I thought I was going to get if I did this? And then interestingly, in verse 12, the fourth of the consequences that's mentioned is that not only is, is, is Adam and Eve's vertical relationship with God broken, but their relationship with each other is now broken as well. The horizontal relationship between Adam, that's, that's broken too. Do you notice what Adam does? Adam, Adam turns on her and throws her under the bus. It's a pathetic, sad, tragic, unmanly solution. But guys, everything that now I'm feeling guilty of, I find some, I try to find somebody else to blame. Or to place the, the blame on them. No one wants to confess their own sin. No one wants to assume responsibility. It's that woman. The one that you gave me. And, and you see that his whole view of Eve has changed radically. He used to delight in this provision that God had made for his aloneness, but not anymore. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Throw her under the bus. Adam is willing to betray his own wife to save his own skin. But you know, Eve doesn't do much better. After Adam has tried to blame her for this problem, Eve says, mm, mm, "No, no, no! It was the it was the it was the serpent." Because again, nobody wants to own their sin. Nobody wants to take responsibility and said, "And for for my sin." And if, and if you look just a little bit more closely, ladies and gentlemen, what you will see is that Adam really blames God. What he says is, "The woman." That you gave me. If you hadn't have given her to me. Then I wouldn't. This would have never happened. 
anything. Anything is, is tried so that I don't have to accept responsibility for what I did. I'll blame my wife. I'll blame my kids. I'll blame God. Because I've got such a high view of myself that I would never dream of standing and owning my own sin. You know, guys, um, as bad as I want to try to make all that sound, all those four consequences that I just mentioned from the text, I, I, I needed to point those things out to you to be, to be faithful to the text. And as bad as all those things sound, My real point this morning is not about the specific consequences that you find in Genesis 3. My real point is this. That disobedience has consequences. Unpredictable, unavoidable, inevitable consequences. Or let me put it another way. God is not mocked. You've seen it play out, ladies and gentlemen, in your own lives. Or maybe in the lives of somebody that's close to you. You know the the story of David and Bathsheba you that I've alluded to a couple of times. I mean, you know what happens after after he repents of his sin, don't you? You know what he, what, what happens. He he, um, one of his sons violates one of his daughters and, and then one of his other sons kills that son and then, and then that son leads a coup to, to, uh, to, to steal the kingdom away from his own father. I, I, this whole, his, his family implodes, ladies and gentlemen, because disobedience has consequences. And you can see them so clearly in David's story. But you can also see them in us, can't you? There's those um, STDs that we're carrying around. There's those... um, very scary eating disorders. There's all those addictions. You know, I, I recently ran across a new one, a new addiction that I hadn't heard of before. It was a young man who, right out of high school, got a full academic scholarship to a state university. And he failed out after the first semester because he wasn't going to class. And the reason that he wasn't going to class is because he was staying up until 5 a.m. in the morning, 4 and 5 a.m. in the morning, playing video games. That young man right now is 25 years old, and they still, they still can't get him out of the bedroom. Because of his addiction to video games. 
Here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. The good news is that you're not crazy. The good news is that you don't need psychotherapy and you don't need all those meds. What you need is to obey. You're just reaping. You're just reaping what you've sown. Life won't work the way you've chosen to live it. And and I'm not sure you believe me when I say that. And so people like me, we get phone calls at 2 a.m. in the morning from some frantic parents because you've just been arrested. Or you just told your parents that that you're pregnant. Or the, or the adult version is, my husband just told me he wants a divorce. Or you just lost your job because of some ethical failing. Or you've just picked up a DUI. Or you can't stop watching porn. Or, 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 and the list goes on. Because of the principle, ladies and gentlemen. The principle is that disobedience has consequences, and that's what you see unfolding in Genesis chapter 3. There's one more consequence that I did not mention. And in one sense, it trumps all the others. It's it's death. But but, but Doctor Kevin, I don't see anybody dying in there. I mean I, I mean I read uh, Genesis chapter four and, and Adam and Eve stood alive. I don't see anybody dead. You got it. You got it right. But guys, I'm not talking about, and I don't think the scriptures are talking about a physical death. That was what was threatened in chapter two, verse seventeen. But what you find, what you find later on, in, in particularly in the New Testament, when Paul is describing our, our pre-conversion state, and he uses words, he uses language like this. He says, "And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins." So, ladies and gentlemen, what what disobedience ultimately brings on is a spiritual death. That means that you are, you are spiritually bankrupt. That you have been rendered lifeless. In terms of everything spiritual. And one of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, that, that some of this, all this talk about uh, consequences and all this talk about the gospel and Jesus Christ and all this business, one of the reasons that that means absolutely nothing to you. It moves you not a bit. It's because you're dead. You are spiritually dead. You have not the slightest smidgen of spiritual life within you. It's just one of the consequences, ladies and gentlemen. You know, back in the story in Genesis chapter 3, 
there was this statement of utter pathos. At least it was for me. When Eve says, in verse 13, she says, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I did eat. She knows she's deceived now, but it's too late. Paul picks up this language in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, that's a pastor speaking. Probably the finest pastor that ever lived. The Apostle Paul. And he says, as he looks over the Corinthian church, he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that you might be like Eve was deceived. That you might be deceived too. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid too. I'm afraid that that some of you are so deceived that you don't even know that you're deceived. Last October, I, I took a group of people, a, a good group, a fun group. I mean, it was a delightful to be with them. Um, took a group to, to the Holy Land, to Israel. and um, Every time I go to Israel, I, I swear I'm never going again because it's like... It's like having to teach a Bible study for eight straight days. I mean, it's uh, it's exhausting, at least for me, it, it's exhausting. But, you know, there seems, there really is kind of a benefit, I think, for just to see some of that stuff. Um, uh, and I, and I, I hope that you'll have a chance sometime. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll arrange it again so that, that you can see some of these things that, that really do kind of, you know, enliven the scriptures as you read them. So there, there's a benefit in going. But one of the, one of the places that I hope you don't miss, if, whether you go with me or go with somebody else, I, the place that you must not miss when you go to Jerusalem, it's a museum. It's a museum, the name of which is Yad Vashim. It's the Holocaust Museum, ladies and gentlemen. It's the, it's the museum that's been erected to remember the, the murder of six million Jews between the mid-30s and the mid-40s. Uh, during World War II and, and before. Six million Jews. And this museum is, is, is built there in Jerusalem to, to remember the Holocaust. And the building itself is, is dull and drab and gray concrete. It was intended to be. It was intended to be dull and gray and drab. And when you, when you go into this museum, they, they have a path that's set for you, and, and, and the path through the museum zigzags. And it, and, and it does it on purpose, so that it can somehow disorient you. As, as you look at life-size pictures of hollowed-eyed individuals, They're these living skeletons, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a pile Behind a glass uh, um, thing, a glass wall, a pile of children's shoes. Piles of children's shoes and, and another pile of, of um, 
of suitcases that people took thinking that they were going to be in prison for a while, and but they'd be coming back. Then there's this, this pile of, of human hair. You know, it's the only museum that I know of that has more exits than it has entrances. Because some people just can't take it. Some people collapse in the midst of looking at this. Some people just have to run. I gotta get out of here. I can't look at this anymore. And so they run out of one of the many exits that are available to them. One of the places in the, in the museum is particularly moving for me. It's called the Room of Remembrance. It's, um, in, in this Room of Remembrance, it's, it's shelves filled with notebooks. And in those notebooks are names, six million names, all, all handwritten. And these notebooks, names of people who died in the Holocaust. And there's shelves and shelves and shelves of these notebooks, of these names. And, and in that room, there's even a sign. In fact, Susie and I saw this same sign in over Auschwitz, but this one was taken from Dachau. And the sign says, work makes you free. As you entered the camp... There was this sign that says, work makes you free. All in the hope that, that, um, that people would think that as they, and, 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 and they thought that as they entered this camp, that if they worked hard enough, they would be set free. Another thing that's in that, that room of remembrance is a document that was produced by the SS. Um, and it was instructions that were given to the guards. That is, if you were a Nazi guard, you were given some instructions as to how to operate in the, in the midst of this camp. And one of the sentences, one of the sentences in that, those instructions that are given to Nazi guards was this sentence. The camp's law is that those going to their death should be deceived until the end. Did you get those last four words? say to you, ladies and gentlemen, some of you have been so deceived that you'll never see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are so deceived that you'll never understand the provisions that God has made for people like us. And you will be deceived.
Ladies and gentlemen, the principle that is woven into the warp and the woof of the universe is that disobedience has consequences. But I am also commissioned to inform you that God in His grace has provided a means by which you and I might have someone stand in our stead and receive the just penalty for our sins. His name is Jesus Christ. And it is He who has paid for all of my sin and has offered to me the gift of eternal life. Have you taken that gift? Ladies and gentlemen, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Our Father, we do face an implacable foe. One who seeks to deceive us into thinking that we are in possession of forgiveness when, in fact, we have nothing more than a self-salvation project. And I pray, O God, that you will grant fresh eyes, eyes from which the scales have fallen so that people can see the deception and might be able to race to Christ before the end arrives. Oh God, for, um, for us who have seen the great beauty of what Christ has accomplished for us, we bless you. We, um, we are overcome that you have allowed us to see our sin and our need for a Savior. Father, would you allow others to see it now? Would you sweep away the mist so that their eyes can gaze upon the beautiful Savior? Would you do that, Father? Before, before the consequences are levied, against those who are outside of Jesus Christ. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.